Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate it and drank, and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. A few weeks ago, I went with some friends to see Stratford's production of Shakespeare's play, King Lear. This was not a play that I was very familiar with before this, and who boy, is it a doozy of a story. Talk about all in the family. <laughs> Lear kicks things off by dividing up his kingdom between his three daughters, if only they would tell him how much they love him. And when his youngest daughter, Cordelia, doesn't say anything because her love for her father is too big for words, the vain and rather fickle Lear disowns her. Luckily for Cordelia, her beau, the king of France, still wants to marry her, but she does so without any property or without her father's blessing. And theirs is not the only dysfunctional family in this drama. Act one, scene two, introduces Edmund, the illegitimate son of the Earl of Gloucester. Edmund is conniving. 
He has been driven to a rage by the fact that his older brother, Edgar, by virtue of being legitimate and the eldest, will receive the earldom and the inheritance. So Edmund concocts a plan to make his father think that Edgar is out to kill him in the hopes of destroying Edgar before then planning to have his father killed so that Edmund might become Earl himself. In the meantime, he courts both of King Lear's eldest daughters, who are also both conniving against their father to undermine what little authority he has left. What follows is a descent into madness and treachery, and as with most Shakespearean tragedies, in the end, just about everyone dies. I would say spoiler alert, but this has been around for like 400 years already, so. <laughs> now at the beginning of the play, we, the audience, feel somewhat sympathetic for, towards Edmund. We, uh, we agree with him. It is not fair that he should not inherit anything. Edmund is a character that has a lot of side conversations with the audience. Like he's bringing us in on his secrets, on his thinking, as though we were rooting for him in his corner, cheering him on in his endeavor. We want justice for Edmund. When he cries at the end of his opening soliloquy, begging the gods to be on his side, we feel for him. But by the end, we know it isn't actually justice Edmund has been seeking, but power and wealth. One analysis says that Edmund rejects the laws of state and society in favor of the laws he sees as eminently more practical and useful, the supremacy of superior cunning and strength. Now, Edmund does repent somewhat of his schemes towards the end of the play, but by then it's too late. The damage has been done. His treachery has led to the downfall of those he once loved. All because of the law of primogenitor. This is the law long held that states that the firstborn son inherits the family wealth and title. And it's this law that is at the heart of the story of another two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau are the grandsons of Abraham, the sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And we've skipped a bit of this family's story the last couple of weeks. Isaac, the now grown son of Abraham and Sarah, has married a woman named Rebekah which bodes well for this family of the promise, this family from whom will come many generations. Except in a story we have heard before, Rebecca can't get pregnant. She goes years, decades without having children. And once more, it looks like God's promise of a great line of descendants is going to be thwarted. But we know now, from our exploration of the lives of Abraham and Sarah, that God is setting this chosen family up to actually be children of the promise. 
At every turn, God is reminding this clan, I am God and you are not. At every turn, God calls his people to trust him, to trust the promise. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, writes, promise requires an end to grasping and certitude and an embrace of precariousness. It is only God who gives life. Any pretense that the future is secured by rights or claims of the family is a deception. This is a point God will drive home later in this story when he upends the rights and claims this family would ordinarily rely on, the law of primogenitor. Now Isaac, in a true act of faith, prays to God for a child, and when God answers his prayers, he doesn't just give Rebecca one child, but two. These are not two contented babies all nestled up next to each other in the womb, however. For nine months, they punch and kick and elbow and shove each other, causing Rebecca no little amount of discomfort. Enough discomfort that she goes and asks God, what is going on? And God tells her what's going on. God speaks into the destiny of the two children she will bear, foretelling what is to come in the rest of the narrative of these two brothers. Both will be leaders. Both will father nations. Both will be in conflict with each other. But ultimately, the older will be subservient to the younger, which is a rather scandalous claim because of the law of primogenitor, the law of the birthright, the law that says that the firstborn, the eldest, will be the one in charge. He inherits at least twice as much of any other brothers after him, if not more. He gets to be the head of the family. The buck stops with him. It was even believed that the eldest would receive a special divine blessing. To be the firstborn is to have power, is to have a guarantee of success and prosperity. This is how the world worked. This is how whole lives were organized. This is part of the, the very foundation upon which society operates. And to quote High School Musical, it is better by far to keep things as they are. Don't mess with the flow, no, no. <laughs> Stick to the status quo. But God has already proven that he is not one to stick to the status quo. He is the God of miracles, the God of surprises. We said at the beginning of this series that there are three basic miracles in scripture, all of which are found in the stories of this first family of the promise. There's creation out of nothing, the resurrection from the dead, and justification by faith. In the story of Jacob, really zeroes in on the miracle of justification by faith. 
of holding on to the promise of God, the promise that says that God is not bound by custom or convention. The promise that it is because of grace and only grace that we are chosen and loved by God and used to accomplish his promises. Bergman says that in this promise or this prophecy that God makes to Rebecca, Jacob is announced as a visible expression of God's remarkable graciousness in the face of conventional definitions of reality and prosperity. Jacob is a scandal from the beginning. The powerful grace of God is a scandal. It upsets the way we would organize life. Grace is a scandal. It upsets the way we would organize life. It is the ultimate surprise. I think that one of the most profound examples of grace, albeit fictitious, is found in another great piece of Western literature, Les Miserables. After Jean Valjean is released from years of prison and working at the galleys, he's taken in and cared for by an elderly bishop. But Valjean knows no other way of life other than thieving and treachery, and so he makes off into the night with some of the silverware that the bishop had laid out for their evening meal. When a policeman catches up with Valjean and finds the silver on him and hauls him back to the bishop, we would expect the bishop to condemn Valjean, to say, you're right, he stole the silver. That's the law, after all. That's how the world works. That's how life is organized. But the bishop doesn't condemn Valjean. He tells the policeman that the silver was a gift and only chastises Valjean for not taking the silver candlesticks as well, which he then hands to the astonished man saying, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. This is the beginning of Jean Valjean's transformation. It is slow and a little bumpy but he carries those candlesticks around with him from here on out to remind him of the person who showed him grace, the person who did not give up on him. By his grace, God chooses Jacob, the younger son, the one that isn't important, the spare, to be the one he will eventually call Israel the father of God's people. And by his grace, God does not give up on Jacob, which is important because Jacob gives God many reasons to give up on him. Jacob is, generally speaking, a terrible person. 
He is a man in need of transformation. And in chapter 25, our text this morning, the beginning of this narrative, Jacob is as conniving a man as Edmund and as prone to theft as Jean Valjean. So he steals his brother's birthright. Jacob knows his brother. He knows that Esau is a man focused on what is immediately in front of him. Esau does not think into the future. He doesn't consider what's coming down the road. Delayed gratification is not Esau's MO. And Jacob knows this, and he takes advantage of it. One day, Esau returns from a long day of hunting in the wilderness, and Jacob just happens to have some soup ready on the burner. And when Esau, a man who thinks only of what is in front of him, declares dramatically that he must have some soup or he will die, Jacob seizes his moment. I'll give you some soup, Jacob says, but only if you give me your birthright in return. Now maybe Esau didn't think that this swap would actually carry any legal weight. Maybe he really didn't care about his birthright. Maybe he is, in fact, just that short-sighted. But whatever the case, he agrees. He sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of red lentil soup. The Hebrew here is quite fun, I think. The word for lentil and red is the same in Hebrew, adom. This is also the word that's used to describe Esau when he is born. He's Adomi, he's reddish. And so the people group that will descend from Esau will be called Edom, or the Edomites, which is from the same root word as red or lentil. The Edomites will be a people concerned with what is immediate, what is in front of them. The people who descend from Jacob will be the people of the promise. The people who hold out in hope for what God has promised them. And so Jacob and Esau make a reappearance in the book of Hebrews. Jacob as an example of one who held on to the promise, and Esau as one who did not. The book of Hebrews is written to a people who face great persecution, and so the message here is clear. Hold fast to the promise of God, even when the desire to protect your life, when the immediate promise of safety and sustenance might make trading your faith in very tempting. Now, Jacob, of course, in this moment, is not holding out for the promise of God. He's a bit more farsighted than Esau, but not much more faithful. Like his grandparents, he is taking matters into his own hands. He's not waiting for God to hand him the birthright. But this doesn't seem to concern God or God's plans. Because the God of miracles, the God of grace, is not undone by our disobedience. 
God will use Jacob's conniving ways to accomplish God's plans. All the while working in Jacob's heart, confronting Jacob, and eventually, as we'll see in a few weeks, bringing him to a place of transformation where Jacob recognizes once and for all that it is God who is in charge, not Jacob, however clever Jacob might think he is. Edmund cried out for the gods to help him, but no one came to his aid, and in the end, he is undone. Jacob doesn't even bring God into the equation right now, and yet it is God who orchestrates Jacob's story. It is God who has called Jacob into this life of conflict, this life of subverting the status quo, and it is God who will keep a close hold on Jacob, not giving up on him, leading him through this transformation. Jacob's God is the God of the promise. The promise we see throughout this story of this family that is riddled by scheming and broken relationships. The promise God will make to a shepherd boy and a Moabite woman and a young virgin and a bunch of fishermen. It's the promise echoed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing the things that are. It is the promise ultimately fulfilled when the divinity of God is made known to us in the person of a carpenter from Nazareth. This is the promise that the grace of God is our foundation not the laws and the customs of the day, not the rules people have written that decree who's in and who's out, who gets power and who gets none. God loves us because he loves us and he chooses who he will and he holds on to us even when others would have given us up. And sometimes that feels a little bit precarious Grace, after all, isn't something we can control. But we can hang our hat on grace. We can trust in grace. This story shows us that we can trust in grace, that we can trust in the promise. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord God, help us to hold on to your promise. When we are tempted to seize control and make ourselves our master, remind us that you and only you are God, and we belong to you. May this promise comfort us when we feel like we don't measure up. And may it challenge us out of our complacency and into a place of trust. Help us to follow you, O oh God, 
God who subverts the status quo, who works in unexpected ways through unexpected people. May we, too, see your presence in surprising places. May we, too, extend grace just as we have received grace. May we not give up on people, for you do not give up on us. Help us, O oh God, to trust in the promise. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.